Hi, I'm Minerva Perez, Executive Director of OLA of Eastern Long Island, in partnership with WLIW-FM and the WNET Group. Tonight, we continue our series of special programs drawing attention to the issues of mental health and addiction in our area with a focus on teens, parents, and healthcare providers. This three-part series aims to raise awareness about addiction and mental health to help people find prevention and treatment resources, along with mental health support right here in our community. Funding for this program is provided by the New York State Education Department, WLIWFM, and OLA. We continue our series talking to parents of local teens who offer personal stories about the issue of mental health, addiction, and isolation due to COVID. But before we begin our conversation, we also want to share that if at any time you or someone you know needs help, you can call the New York Helpline at 988, or you can call 877-8-HOPE-NY, or you can text 467-369, or visit the New York State Office of Addiction Services and Supports website at oasas.ny.gov. For youth ages 12 to 24, OLA's helpline can be texted in Spanish or English seven days a week from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. for substance abuse and mental health support. That number is 631-810-9010. A Spanish language transcription of this program is available on WLIW.org radio and OLA of Eastern Long Island.org. I am very happy to be sitting here with Elena Crotman. She is a mom, lives in the Sag Harbor area, and we're going to have a conversation from a parent perspective on some of the, the opportunities, some of the challenges that we have experienced with regard to adolescence, having adolescence, raising adolescence, uh, and the conversations around mental and emotional health. Elena, I want to thank you so much for being here and having this conversation. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our uh, discussion. So um, with the area of raising adolescents, um, you've, you've got a few of them, yes? Yes, I have a, a 22-year-old, not, no longer an adolescent, young adult, uh, an 18-year-old uh, who just went away to college, and a very grumpy, moody 16-year-old at home. Girl, boy, boy. Mine is a little bit older. I've got a 26-year-old. Um, so in terms of navigating some of this space, I mean, we're the work that we're engaging with, a lot of the work in the schools and then having a helpline and just trying to meet the needs of, of adolescents and just learn what those needs are and where the gaps are. Um, from a parent perspective, where are some of the challenges that you've seen? And they could be through your own experience with your own kids, or they could be through the kids that might be coming through your home. Um, where are some of the challenges that you're that you're seeing? Um, with my kids, they the three of them are in different phases um, of their lives, and the three of them have different needs. Uh, my oldest, being on the spectrum, has very different needs than the two boys who are not, and. A lot of times it's deciding whether her behavior is it due to being on the spectrum or is it just like a normal, you know, young adult who's exerting herself. And whereas the boys, their personalities and the different challenges that they might have, being just constantly aware of where they're at 
um, and being in tune to their needs. Luckily, both boys are uh, very friendly and have a lot of friends and a lot of them that do come through the house. So been able to see a lot um, in terms of you know, where they're at in terms of how they feel about themselves, about their families, their environment, and any um, challenges they may have. So it, it really just depends on, on, I have to look at each of them individually and try to take into account really a whole picture and not just what their behavior might be or uh, their moods, really. You know, a lot of times it's so layered and being able to just dig deep be available, listen, you know, and hopefully they trust you enough <laughs> to talk to you about that. And you always want to be that safe space. One thing that we've been seeing with some of the youth that we've been working with um, between the ages of, let's say, of uh, 12 to 25 has been the willingness uh, to have conversations uh, about mental and emotional health, that it's not maybe what my generation Mm-hmm. would have just sort of shut that conversation down in a heartbeat. Are you feeling from your kids and their peers that there is an easier way or at least the possibility of having that conversation? You know, I think they have to be in the mood. You have to find them in the right spot. I remember a girlfriend of mine telling me years ago when I, I, I said to her, um, you know, she was a clinical psychologist and, and she specialized with adolescents. And I would say, Deb, how do I ensure that the kids come to me when they are maybe going through something? And she just said, you know, Elena, just just be available. They, they're going to open up to you if they feel they're in a safe environment and if you're available. And she says, and it could be that it'll be that one time you're driving them from, mm. you know, from school or you're taking them to a football game or it could be that you're making dinner and all of a sudden they just blurt out what's bothering them or they're carrying with mm-hmm. them. It's just mm-hmm. being available. And, and making it okay, reiterating that they can talk to you about anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I try to live that, that advice. A lot of times it was prodding, you know? All of them have social media and uh, they might post something. And this, of course, this is a social media that I'm aware of because they also have <laughs> other accounts that I'm not privy to. Um, you know, but they might post something and I might say, hey, Marcus, I saw you posted XYZ, you know, you want to talk about that? And they might want to and they might not. Other times, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the boys seem to be more stoic. They don't like to talk as much mm-hmm. as the, the girls do. As I, I don't know that maybe a lot of it could be cultural. A lot of it is, is I can handle this or it's like, no, it's embarrassing. You know, I'd rather talk to dad about that or someone else. So I definitely always encouraged, especially my youngest one. He had a hard time after the, during the pandemic, actually. Uh, he played a lot of sports and he identified as an athlete. So when schools started practicing social distancing and did not have sports, that really did affect him tremendously. Good thing is that the school also was very attuned and w- reached out to us and said they were concerned about uh, you know, his, his behavior changing at school. All of a sudden he was not as engaging. He disassociated himself from his uh, peers, just was not his lively self. And they felt that it was more than just the, uh, maybe, you know, the pandemic. So I was happy that the school reached out and had us aware of this so that we could watch him. So I was a bit extra vigilant at that time. You really do need (laughs) a lot of eyes everywhere with 
your children. You were saying something and I was thinking about yes. also the driving and how oftentimes mm. sort of having the non-focus, like literal non-focus on, on, your, on your adolescent. Uh, so sometimes when I was driving with my daughter and just looking out uh, yeah, out of the you know driving the car, um, she was more willing to speak about different things that were going on because she didn't have my gaze on her. Like the power of that gaze, the power of that attention isn't always a great thing. That even though it might feel like you know you you learn as an adult and you're and you're in business or you're you know doing different things, you learn about eye contact and you want to be and you know let people know that you're there for them. But oftentimes, at least with adolescents, sometimes it depends on your child, of course, that that can just feel like too much. It's like a hyper focus on them. The other big thing that I I learned from doing things with her or trying to communicate during difficult times was that my responses. So even if it was a little response, like, like that kind of response, like that was just horrible for her. <laughs> that if I, you know, as opposed to just sort of hearing what she had to say and almost underplaying it to the point where it was painful for me because I'm a pretty responsive person, <laughs> right. but I had to just kind of dull it down a bit yes. just so she could not feel like everything was a, a reaction. Yes. Um, and I, I kind of learned that. I learned that through her, and I kind of bring that into the work that I that I do now as well whenever I can. But um, ha- different different kind of tricks or different, different things at work, anything that seemed to be something that maybe it was only specific to you and your right. kids, but anything that you could share? You're right. You cannot react because then they will shut down. Um, one thing that worked really well or continues to work well uh, for my daughter and me is texting. She feels so much more at ease uh, expressing herself uh, and telling me her deepest, darkest secrets. <laughs> <laughs> you know, things are really bothering her uh, via texting. I think also because she feels that she can really get um, everything she wants to say out in a moment without me interrupting her. Because, yes, you're right. There'll be times where maybe it's, if it's a lot, and a lot of times, you know, whenever she's um, sharing anything, it's layered. It's not just one thing. It could be like six things. And so I'm trying <laughs> to uh, go ahead and respond to each thing individually. And for her, it's just easier texting. At least for her, that's what's worked. That's great. And that, that's mm-hmm. certainly the basis of, you know, a lot of work that, that we're doing mm-hmm. is uh, sort of text-based uh, crisis counseling, crisis mm-hmm. support work with youth, because we are also seeing that middle schoolers and high schoolers are much more willing to text when they know it's a confidential situation or even an anonymous situation, that they are utilizing that in a way that we kind of felt that they would. But boy, we're getting lots and lots of texts. And and thankfully, we have a great team that's, you know, answering these texts. But I had a couple more questions for you. One is what we're trying to look at is some of the areas around substance use. Mm-hmm. So whether that be alcohol, marijuana, prescription medication, completely illicit medication, looking at adolescence use of that. So I say substance use because there are so there's sort of different nomenclature around that or abuse or misuse or and there's different definitions for these things. So I don't just want to glom it all into one thing. But in my day, um, uh, it could have been more of you just look at that as sort of, okay, that is a punitive response. You should not be doing those drugs. They're not legal. You're too young to be doing them. And the conversation would have just been, don't do that or you're going to go to jail or mm-hmm. don't do you're going to mm-hmm. go to juvie or something like that. Um, a lot of what we're trying to do with the work that we're doing and we're learning more and more about is substance use as a coping mechanism. I mm-hmm. mean, in the same way that kids, uh, adolescents right now are watching their parents drink 
five glasses of wine at the end of a hard day's work, um, that's a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. And not to say that it's right, but certainly to say that it is part of the fabric of um, how you deal with different things, how you deal with potentially stress or very, very hard uh, times in your life that you're going through. So we're trying to weave that into the conversation. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's difficult because you don't, you know, even though marijuana is legal and there, there are ways of, 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 of obtaining that through your doctor and different, different, re different sources and otherwise, um, the conversation around that has become a bit more difficult to have. And yet also very important because we want to make sure that our kids are supported in all ways and whether or not it's a substance or whether or not it's another mechanism to cope, which could be self-harm, mm -hmm. which could be how you're controlling your eating to the point that it is an eating disorder or these types of things. But in terms of substance use and potentially misuse, any thoughts on that in terms of um, best support for adolescents or understanding as, as a parent? Well, being out from Sag Harbor, a sleepy little town <laughs> where the kids don't have that many um, outlets, things to do, drinking definitely starts early. I remember from, you know, when the boys, and I'm not even going to include my eldest because she was never interested. And to this day, she'll have uh, gin and tonic, but no gin, <laughs> you know, because she wants to feel grown up. And, and uh, if we go to a, a bar or a restaurant. But the boys, on the other hand, they, you know, I started finding beer cans here and there. And they wanted to have parties at the house. And I, I remember the first time they had, I said, sure, you can have a party here at the house. But I'm going to go through everyone's backpack. And, uh, you know, you just can't have, mom, you are so, you, you are so not, a, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be the cool mom. That's not my role. That's not what I want. You, if you want to do that somewhere else, then I can't take care of you and be watchful always. You know, you have to know what you're uh, doing and you have a responsibility. I just need you to know that it's not acceptable here at our home. That was always like our our rule, and I'm not saying you should do this or not, but as they got older, you know, first we would read them the riot act of like, this is not acceptable. This is not what we do. You are young. It's going to affect your growth, um, specifically your development and your cognitive development. And there's like a lot of science behind it. Of course, they don't hear you. They don't listen <laughs> to, <laughs> to you. Uh, so it was this constant thing of like setting boundaries, right? Okay, there's a curfew and follow them. And I'm, you know, you're just on them, you just let them know it's just like not acceptable. But as they got older, and you knew that they were doing it, they started pushing back of come on, you know, you and dad did it. You're not going to tell us you guys weren't teenagers once and what's one or two beers. It's nothing. I mean, they, 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 had, they had their own excuses or reasons of like why it was acceptable. And we just sort of stuck to our guns and it's like, mm -hmm. it's not acceptable. And it leads to other things. It is a gateway. And of course they'd roll their eyes and say, no, it's not a gateway. Uh, if I drink one or two beers, I'm not going to become an alcoholic. I'm not going to start smoking pot. I'm not going to this or that. Mm -hmm. So it was this constant conversation we had, especially on a Friday night, you know, or a Saturday night. And I just limited in terms of like the parties at the house, because half part of me said, you know, they're probably sneaking this stuff in, but I would be a nervous wreck. And I would say, okay, listen, I'm just going to watch everyone come in and out. No one's driving 
home. I mean, I just got very nervous. And mm -hmm, at this point, mm -hmm. I just don't even let them have parties anymore, <laughs> you know, because I was always very just nervous sure, about sure. Uh, their repercussions about that. But they, I hate to say it, they're going to do it anyway. Mm -hmm, Whether mm -hmm. you, It doesn't matter how much you tell them not to. Um, I think, though, that if you have a home, you know, where you do talk about it and you're open about it and you offer safe places um, to talk about things that are bothering them, they may not have the need, you know, to self-medicate. A lot of times it's, 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 as you said, coping. It's a way of coping. And they're going to look for other ways like smoking pot or um, maybe sneaking into mom and dad's uh, medicine cabinet, which by the way, all parents lock your medicine cabinets, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, for, you know, for, uh, anxiety medication or for any other kind of uh, medication parents are, are taking. So I think that as long as you're giving the kids as much freedom and space to talk to you about anything without judgment, you know, hopefully they'll do less of it. But I think that it's a, just a reality that we have to be aware of and not be ignorant that they're not going to and just be vigilant. And of course, you know, always state, you know, your case, it's not acceptable. We don't do this here. Yeah, I think those boundaries, are the, yes. those boundaries are great. Um, and I think also kind of, you know, as you are able to see your child's behavior or any kind of major changes. Mm -hmm. So that could be in anything, whether they're um, having a going through a depressive state or they are using uh, too much alcohol or they're smoking a lot of pot or they're doing like you're going to potentially see these changes in uh, in their behavior and their affect and just being awake and alive to that and be able to have those conversations. One thing that was important for me when my daughter was younger was also having two other friends that mm. my daughter knew that she could go to them if there were some difficult things that she needed to talk about and she just didn't trust that I wasn't going to do another one of those <gasps> situations, um, that she had these other moms yes. uh, that she could go to because um, I think that's also very important. We hear a lot about students that they basically are just kind of, they're there for each other, but honestly, it gets a little too heavy. So there could be one student that is dubbed kind of the therapist of the group mm. and they are getting everything because those kids don't feel like they can go to their parents. Some of those kids have their own therapists. They don't even want to talk to them. So they only talk to this other child, uh, and that's who's solving these problems. So it's just important because your child might be that child, and how are they holding everyone else's heaviness? Um, it might seem like your child has got everything going on, but to be able to understand what's happening in their friend circle and how much they are caring, I think, is also very important. I had one other question that I wanted to bring in that's more of an Elena question. Sure. As you're talking, I'm thinking about you know just what we navigate as children of other parents. So you're a child of parents. I'm a child of somebody else, you know, some other parents. Um, it's very different what, how we grew up oh, yes. generationally and also the fact that your parents were born mm -hmm. and, and from Mexico. Mm -hmm. So in terms of if you could speak a little bit to the sort of the differences and maybe with the mental health, emotional health, how you talk about it, how you feel, how it's even viewed in a household, um, which doesn't have to be different because it's a Mexican-American household, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. just your own personal experience. What do you see as being some of the most striking differences between how you grew up and how you're raising your children? Oh, night and day, completely. I'm the oldest of five children, and it's not funny, haha, in terms of like how I uh, have been able to really think about at that time growing up. I can now say that my mother was always a um, wonderful, loving human being, but she grew up with a lot of depression. And now I realize a lot of trauma 
because of severe poverty. Uh, and my father was uh, the same thing. He was just very neglected. Um, from the time he was little, he immigrated here to the U.S. when he was you know, only 16 years old. So you, here they're young and trying to raise uh, five kids. Um, and even when my mother was pregnant with me, she lost uh, that baby uh, when the baby was 10 months old. And she was pregnant and gave birth to me like two months later, you oh. know. So it was really quite devastating. So you, you, you think about like all the things that you, uh, all the things that I felt, I didn't have words for it. All I knew was that I just didn't want to give my parents any kind of anxiety or stress or hurt. And so I was always like the good girl or the oldest and took care of the little kids. I just wanted my mother like not to be sad. So anything that bothered us, and, and trust me, there's plenty of things, especially when you're first generation uh, Hispanic growing up. Um, now I grew up in Los Angeles. No, you're little, you notice the differences and, and you're, and you see how you're different and you have these these feelings and there's all these things that you know uh, then a child was was to be seen not heard um you never questioned the adults uh, who made all the decisions and of course now i when i had kids i i, I basically took a parenting class because i said i don't want to raise my kids the same way i don't want them to be raised with fear I wanted them to be raised uh, confident and to know that I, it would always be a safe haven. Um, I still make lots of mistakes, but I reflect and I'm quick to apologize and say, oh my gosh, I think I messed up. I'm so sorry. Um, this is what I was thinking or I'm going through, but it doesn't mean that it was right. And you know, model you model the the behavior. So it's very different <laughs> than how I uh, I grew up. Um, I grew up with a lot of shame and just a lot of family secrets, and you just carried yeah you know, all this this angst and sadness and depression <laughs> with you. So I don't know. I do realize though that it's made me resilient. I know a lot of people. It's a little harder. Uh, have other siblings who maybe are not as resilient. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. So at least with the way I was raised, I just knew that I wanted my kids raised a different way. So I made a conscious effort of that. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. Thank you. And I think bringing up the point about uh, being transparent and being able to speak to the mistakes that we make as parents um, is so important. And I think that it, it goes a tremendous way. It doesn't take away your authority or respect. It shows your child, like you said, you're modeling the behavior that that you know is something that is only going to add to their character. I just want to thank you for making the time to speak about these very important topics, and it's really wonderful to sit with you. Thank you. So I am here this afternoon with Triste, who is a healthcare professional right here in Stony Brook Southampton Hospital, and she's here today uh, as a guest to talk about what are some things that we've learned, things that we still have to learn about being parents, about raising teens, and I'm really happy to have Triste here. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So I want to start off by um, kind of sharing a bit that I got to know you a little bit when we were doing some teen leadership dinners and your son LeBron uh, participated. You're part of the Shinnecock community and we were out there at the Shinnecock Nation and having this wonderful dinner at the Boys and Girls Club. 
and uh, with Diashua, and uh, and he was really interested in some of the work that we were doing, and he applied and received um, a scholarship from Ola. Uh, so we got to stay in contact with him and also with you, and we are expanding our work with youth uh, across the board in middle school and high school and then even into college. Um, and so we really are trying to look at all the ways that um, not just Ola but our full community should be aware of how best we can support our youth. Our youth need, mm-hmm. need us. And as parents in particular, uh, sometimes it can be difficult. It can be challenging. Uh, so I'm going to throw out a hard question for you first. <laughs> uh, yeah, some challenges. Challenges that you've experienced raising teens. And you've, you're raising LeBron, who right now is 19, and you've also got an older child. So you're you know, raising a couple. What are some challenges that you've experienced? The most part of it is you know, communication. That is a big challenge because not only just for my son, but you know, I hear from other parents as well. They'll tell you one thing and then it's another thing. And then you, know, you get everything set in stone and that's not the way it's supposed to be. But pretty much after it's all said and done you know Mm -hmm. it's worked its way out so we can't put them back right exactly (laughs) exactly another challenge that i've experienced and kind of i guess i still do coping you know how our kids cope with difficult things in their lives is something that we have to somehow understand like they might want to cope a different way but we also have to be in kind of knowing some of this stuff so it doesn't end up being the most unhealthy way to cope. But it's it, I'm, I'm finding it hard to like make sure I can sort of pull back not so much judgment but my fear as a parent um, because kids are going to need to cope the way they need to cope. And I can't just keep saying, no, that's the wrong way. That's the wrong way. Well, maybe that's the best way that she has right now. So whatever that is, if sometimes that might be with food, with exercise, it could be with substance, it could be with healthy or unhealthy activities. People cope with stress mm-hmm. and fear in different ways. What are your thoughts on how kids cope or where we are as parents? How do we help? Well, yeah, that is, you know, a big issue. What I actually do or what I have also done, I let them speak, say what's on their mind. Mm-hmm. And once they're done, I'll give them the harsh reality of it. And then I'll give them the easier way. So you have to pick and choose, you know, which direction you want to go or how you want to cope with it. For me and how I raised my kids, I just gave them the harsh reality of it, Mm -hmm. the hard part, you Mm -hmm. know, just be right up front, say, hey, this is what's going to happen if you do Mm -hmm. it this way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do it this way, this is what's going to happen. So you have two choices. You either want to go to the left or you want to go to the right. Well, what about when they go another way and they just don't tell us about it? <laughs> because oh, that boy. happens that's, too. <laughs> that's an issue. <laughs> you know, it, it's tough because, I, you know, like, let's say even in terms of it's easy for our kids to, whatever, it's alcohol, whatever might be vaping. And whatever it might be that they might need to, to do something to de-stress or calm or whatever, it's kind of this line between when does a kid or youth feel like they've got the control over something and maybe they do or when is it something that they're not they're not realizing it's gotten out of their control so i look to a lot of my daughter's friends or her experiences and i and i see that some might feel that they've got things under control but they don't you know and and it's it's somehow like how to have that conversation 
Because it's not even like you can just tell them. I, you know, my daughter's 26 now, so I can't just say, well, don't do that. Right, like right. I, it, there has to be something in there that she's kind of navigating. Well, this doesn't fulfill me in the way that, I, that makes me happy. It doesn't make me feel proud of myself or it's not getting me to my goal. You know, like what's getting to me to my goal? And I feel like when, we, when our kids start identifying what those goals are, then I think it becomes a bit easier. Like I know your son is mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. a basketball player. He's an athlete um, identifying. And, and also, you know, he's, he's going to college. He, he's he's going to be studying different things. But when he identifies his goals, what takes him away from that goal? What, what lets him stay on track to that goal? And I feel like that's giving me a slightly easier time as a parent mm-hmm. to try to pull away the things that might be taken off the goal and not just be the no person because it doesn't always work. Right. Yeah. That no is a big word for them. <laughs> Well, with LeBron, when he first, his freshman year, Mm -hmm. I was on him like, son, did you go talk to the coach? No, mom, no, mom, no, mom. Mm -hmm. So come to find out, he didn't want to play basketball his freshman year. He made the decision to say, hey, I'm a freshman. This is all new to me. Mm -hmm. I'm scared. I don't know what this life is. Mm -hmm. Um, So he just basically shut basketball down completely. And just studied on his studies. Mm-hmm. I remember he was getting some amazing grades too. I remember. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's great. what he did. His first semester was really awesome. And then he ran into some challenges mm-hmm. he wasn't comfortable with. So we had to keep calling him every day just to check on his mental, mm-hmm. you know, just to make sure he was okay. Mm-hmm. Because he wasn't okay mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. situation. Was there support in the college um, for emotional health and whatnot? There was, mm-hmm. but I think what it is with some students, kids, they have to actually trust the person before they can say what they need to say. You know, they got to feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I know that with LeBron, I mean, even with basketball coaching, the coaches that he had, you know, he had to feel comfortable mm-hmm. in order for him to, to let go. Absolutely. Yeah, I think he um, has to, well, not just him. I think the kids just have to feel comfortable Mm -hmm. and in a secure place where they're able to just say what they need to say and what's on their mind. So he really wasn't too comfortable. And then he made a decision where he wanted to transfer. Mm -hmm. He did all of that on his own. He transferred. And then once he got here back home, it was... A difference for him mm-hmm. and he did struggle for the second semester but he made it through and after a couple of weeks being home he was like after thinking about all of this he mm-hmm. says i really think i could have stuck it out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he said but you know it's a lesson learned for me mm-hmm. and how i can move on mm. with certain situations wow what are some ways because i know that you're direct and honesty and reality these yeah. are these are things that you bring as a parent which is awesome what are some words of of advice or just like things that you might share with a parent who's kind of struggling with this communication piece and it's just not feeling that they, they don't want to shut down their child but they want to get through on a particular topic what are some approaches just say the child comes home from school and you can see they're upset or mm-hmm. you know there's something that's on their mind just give them their space a little bit And then I know what I noticed was that my kids would always walk around or just stand there. Mm -hmm. So when they're just standing there, you know, they want to (laughs) talk. It's like, okay, well, let's sit down on this couch and 
just air it out. Just give it to me the way that you would give it to your friend. Mm-hmm. You know, let them express what they need to express because they have to be, feel comfortable talking to mom, dad, auntie, or whomever they need to speak with. Yeah, just by them fidgeting their fingers, you know they're nervous, give them their time, and then say, hey, let's either sit down or we'll get back to this in an hour. Mm-hmm. But just give them something to think about, and mm-hmm. then they'll come back, and they'll sit down and they'll talk with you. Overall, I mean, the, the whole parent portion of this for us is just making sure that we let parents know that that it's really not just only on their shoulders. Like there's, there's, it's difficult. There's no, there's no easy handbook. I don't care how many books have been written. Right. (laughs) There's not a book that's been written about your kid. Mm -hmm. Nope. (laughs) What about the role of community? I mean, do you feel that that's played a positive role? Um, Do you feel that there's been more access or just a, a less, less of a feeling of isolation because of community for you? And LeBron? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I can agree with that. And every day, you know, like even this year, I'm, I'm watching some of the teachers here in, in the Southampton School District step up and take on these new different projects for the kids mm-hmm. and where they can call and be comfortable with them. And I'm like, wow, this is, you know, That's really great, great now. You, you just have to get the kids just to talk. Mm-hmm. Talk and communication, trust. Those, to me, are the big keys. Well, thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. One, thank wonderful, you. Wonderful thoughts, wonderful words. And I think people are really going to receive that. Um, and just, you know, be reminded of how important that is. Uh, thank cool. you. I'm your host, Minerva Perez, Executive Director of OLA of Eastern Long Island, in partnership with WLIW-FM and the WNET Group. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, we wrap up our three-part series speaking with a healthcare professional who offers insights and guidance on dealing with mental health, addiction, and COVID isolation. We want to share with you that if you or someone you know needs help, you can call the New York Helpline at 988 or you can call 877-8-HOPE-NY or you can text 467-369 or visit the New York State Office of Addiction Services and Supports website at oasas.ny.gov. For youth ages 12 to 24, OLA's helpline can be texted in Spanish or English seven days a week from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. for substance abuse and mental health support at 631-810-9010. 